Once he posed the question to me, over and over the crow cries uncover the cornfield. What does that mean? I said, Mike, I don't know. There were so many aspects of the Smile album and the elements and, and all the things that made up the record that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go. Because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. It wasn't fulfilling him, it was painful. So uh, we made Smiley smile instead. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining me. Today, we are going to listen to some tunes, talk to some friends, and maybe we'll learn something along the way as we continue to celebrate the lives and the music of America's band, our band, the Beach Boys. A lot to get into today, so let's get started with some voicemails. What's up, dudes? Jake from Pittsburgh. Been wanting to do this for a while, and here I finally am. First things first, podcast is great. Um, you guys have helped me discover so much music similar to the Beach Boys, and songs that you guys really like that I never really gave the time of day, and all of that. So keep doing what you're doing, and I'm loving every second of it. Um, but hey, I know you guys like to hear how people got into the Beach Boys, so. I'm 27 years old now. I've been an avid fan for probably probably about the last decade or so. But anyways, um, it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to get into surfing USA, uh, surfer girls, stuff like that. Um, and it wasn't until college that I really started diving in after finally buying the, uh, I think it was the Sounds of Summer on CD, which I was probably the only person in the University of Pittsburgh buying CDs at that time. But um, so yeah, so my funny story about the Beach Boys is once I got into Pet Sounds, which was probably a year after college where I really dove into it, I went through the phase, which I'm sure you guys have as well, where I was listening to it every single day for probably at least a year. Um, and in doing so, it really made me learn a lot about myself and actually made me realize the girl that I was dating, I wasn't as in love with as I thought. Um, and eventually I ended up breaking up with her, and I'm, I'm not crediting Brian Wilson or the Beach Boys with that breakup, but I can truly say that if I hadn't gotten so into Pet Sounds, I don't think I would have gotten so deep into my mind and, and really thought things through the way that I did and the way that it opened me up. Um, another little side thing that you guys will think is funny, I actually got into Friends prior to getting into Pet Sounds, and I absolutely love that album. I think it's an absolute gem. So many good tracks on it. The sounds are just so weird and cool. Um, and lately, and I, I'm still working my way through the podcast, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but I've been listening to today quite a bit. Um, I know a lot of people say that the B-side is a good precursor to Pet Sounds, which I agree, but the one track that really stands out on that is Please Let Me Wonder. Such an unreal track. Just the early genius of Ryan Wilson showing everything about it. Um, but I don't want to take any more of you guys' time. Again, love what you do. Um, keep on rocking, guys. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Jake. 
that's awesome. Thank you for listening. And I don't want to spoil it, but Please Let Me Wonder is my favorite Beach Boys song. So there you go. Let's move on to a voicemail from Sean. Hey, gentlemen, this is Sean from Scottsdale. I uh, hope you're doing well. I just wanted to drop you a line to tell you how much I've enjoyed the pod. I discovered it about a week back and uh, have just mainlined it to the point where I just started season three today. So a bit of backstory, uh, the Beach Boys have always been part of my life in the same way that, you know, any seminal part of pop culture is. I knew the hits, appreciated them when they came on, but kind of went no further. So something changed in me almost a year ago as I approached 30, I guess. I don't know, maybe I was just feeling more sentimental, but I was driving around listening to the Sounds of Summer collection and it just hit me. You know, 30 tracks, not a bad one among them. And after that, I became an addict. I watched Love and Mercy, read Brian's memoir, devoured all the albums, a band based in solo that I could. I was doing last summer with tickets to see Brian, his band, Blondie Nail, play with the zombies. And it was a really good night for Brian. He was engaged on key, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I cried as he sang God Only Knows. You know, the pain and experience that are just carried in that voice. Uh, breathtaking and life-affirming. I just got back from the store after buying still cruising, so I guess you could say I went pretty deep. Uh, for sure, your podcast means uh, a lot to me, almost as much as the music it covers. So keep the good vibes coming and know that you're appreciated. Thanks. Well, I appreciate you as well, Sean. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Glad you're listening. Glad you're making your way so quickly through the episodes. Things are going to slow down for you when you get up to speed, but, you know... We're going to be here. We're going to do what we do. I'm still doing this thing. Hearing you guys and your support, it really keeps me going. So thank you so much. And um, if you want to leave a voicemail, that's 615-606-3887. Or just send me a voice memo at the email, sailonpodcast at gmail.com. This show is proudly advertisement-free, but if you find value in it, then please consider supporting us on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash sale on. Special shout out to Lee, Ian, and Doug for being new patrons. Welcome to the family. And I really want to give a special shout out to our good friend and patron, Bob Cheely. Hope you're doing well, Bob. We love you. We love you. Okay, rolling. Your summer dream. Basic take one. Real sweet. So joining us today is my good friend, Melanie Svena. What's up, Melanie? Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here too. Right on. It's a, it's a strange time for everybody. How are you doing out in California? Oh, pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely um, strange, I guess, is putting it lightly. But yeah, it's definitely been a turbulent year so far, but you know we're trucking on. <laughs> yeah, for real. So thanks for taking the time out to talk to me. Um, I've been, you know, following your uh, social media for a while. And I feel like, you know, a lot of our listeners would really appreciate it. It's a lot of great like 60s fashion and uh, a lot of Beach Boys related content too. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and their name is uh, Your Summer Dream with uh, underscore in between the uh words my, right yeah. okay my favorite beach boy song <laughs> oh awesome i didn't know that 
Yeah. That's a great song. And I think, you know, it's one of those ones that it was so early on that a lot of people don't really dig into it. You know, they just think, hey, yeah, let's, for sure. you know, it's Surfer Girl and all that is like just kind of silly. But man, that is one of my favorite early Beach Boys records. And that song especially like oh, always yeah. hit home with me when I was young. And yeah, what a great mood and vibe that song. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's so, it's so underrated. <laughs> How did you originally get into the Beach Boys? Well, um, I have younger parents, so they had me when they were about 24, and this is, I was born in 1980, so they were still into, like, buying records and, you know, just being part of music culture or whatever. I was basically raised by MTV, so I've always been into music, um, but uh, I started off as, like, actually a hardcore Beach, a Beatles fan, actually. Um, I was kind of like one of those, you know, Beach Boys versus Beatles people all the time, and when you hmm. grew up in California, it's kind of like you're sick of the Beach Boys already. Like, when you're born, you're <laughs> giving a copy of, like, Endless Summer, and, like, you know, here you go. Welcome to California. So, yeah. um, I just always kind of shunned them for a while. It was just so corny to me, and I really kind of, like, gravitated more towards the Beatles, but it wasn't until I was, like, a little bit older, like, around high school, when someone was like, dude, Pet Sounds, like, for real, you need to get into Pet Sounds, and I finally, like, opened up my mind and listened, and I was like, wow, this is pretty great. And you know, kind of like let them into my life a little bit more, but um, I didn't really get into them until I became an adult and um, kind of revisited Pet Sounds again during kind of a de- like a dark, depressive time in my life that really almost in a way kind of saved my life. And uh, I just started digging into their catalog after that. And there was no going back after that. I'm like full blown Beach Boys fanatic. Um, I've definitely been able to understand what they do now and that old stuff that i thought was corny is no longer corny to me i just i love it so much so yeah it just um <laughs> it's been a, a whirlwind for sure but anytime i can get my hands on anything beach boys and uh you know learn about them and and, and hear more music it's just i i can't get enough of it so it just kind of happened all at once but um i still love the beatles of course but um beach boys are my number one <laughs> yeah i mean i don't i don't think there's ever going to be an argument against um, liking both the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Like, I mean, from sure. logical people with good taste. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that's why you get the comparison so often. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like... Yeah. Same time period. They're kind of like riffing off of each other. And, you know, it's just funny that they become two camps, I guess. I guess when you... I feel like every girl goes through that. When you're 13, you're in love with the Beatles phase. And that's just kind of where I went. But yeah, it's it's really easy to compare the two, for sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was similar. I mean, I, I, my parents both loved um, the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Um, I was born in 80 as well. Just constantly, like, hearing that music growing up, you know? And I felt like, right. almost like I should rebel against it at times. I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want to, like, admit that your parents are right about something. And I was just like, ah. And I kept coming back to exactly. it, you know? And I was like, yeah, the Beach Boys actually exactly. are amazing. God. Right. That was right. right. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> totally. But I mean the other the other side of that coin for you is like the fashion world that um yeah. your personal fashion and then just like the curation of like sixties mod culture and all that, like is just so fantastic. Oh my thank you. Was that like a something that came out of the music or was that something that like developed separately? Um, it's hard to say. I've always been into vintage clothes, even before I was you know, really, really into music, which I've, I've kind of always been, but I think I always come back to the sixties for some reason. And it's so weird to me. And I do love sixties music the most. I mean, to me, the most innovative decades are the sixties and the eighties are just like really 
Love them. And, um, you know, I've done all types of eras. I've been really into the 40s. And, you know, I was very heavily into the 50s at one moment. And then I just kind of got out of everything at one moment. And I always come back to the 60s. But that music has always been there for me. And so I feel like it's, it's a, a good pair, I guess. Um, people always tell me, oh, you're born in the wrong era. And you love the 60s. And it's just, for some reason, it's, it's a decade I look at was like, obviously very you know, turbulent, but also eye-opening and changing and fun and just so many innovative things came out. And I just really gravitate towards the fashion for sure. I um, was really into the mod scene for years and years, for like 10 years of my life. It was just like only mod everything. And um, yeah, I guess they kind of go hand in hand. It's, it's funny. I, it always felt weird to be dressing like 40s and 30s and listening to 50s and 60s. So I guess it kind of... Um, it just feels right. <laughs> right. The women's fashion is so exciting to me because no one dresses like that anymore. Like the shapes and like the right. patterns and stuff. And yeah. uh, and the hair too. Like I just love that. I love the look of it. I love the happy colors. And, right. You know, it's just, it, and, and it to me, I can't separate the two. It's like Beach Boys and like the 60s fashion and like the California, like the, I remember looking at the album covers and, you know, and just kind of separating the fact that it was 40 years in the past or whatever, but it was just looking at that right. stuff was just like, so, uh, it just really captured that California myth for me, like the visuals, um, with the cars oh, sure. and the, and the girls with the bikinis and the surfboards and just all that stuff came exactly. full circle for me. And like, I think that's one of those things that a lot of people appreciate. And it also like kind of creates this, this vibe and this mood and, and, uh, um, right. but I wanted to talk about a couple other things. Cause like, um, you have a unique perspective and I'm, I'm excited to learn more about it because you made a post a few weeks ago. You said, what do you do when something you love comes with a problematic fan base? How do you keep it from tarnishing what you love and talking about both the music and the fashion? And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, certainly. Um, it's already weird loving the, quote, whitest band ever, um, being a black woman or any POCs who love the Beach Boys, which I'm, you know, there's a few, there's, there's, we're out there. Um, it is a weird perspective. It's weird going out to concerts and, you know, kind of being the only one, which is fine. You know, that's okay. But the, the, the fan base is a little, it's a little skewed sometimes just because of the whole America's band kind of, you know, moniker that they've stuck with. And for some reason, America is kind of synonymous with being, um, you know, a little racist. And that comes with the territory. But it is, um, it's weird. I've met a lot of people in this fandom. I've met a lot of friends, people I've talked to for years, and it's been great. And I know now that, you know, a lot of these human rights issues are coming to light. Um, a lot of them choose not to say anything about it, which is fine. A lot of them have kind of recoiled from being my friend, which is interesting, I thought. And I'm like, well, why is that? And sometimes I think it's because, you know, the music obviously brings us together, but I think they think of me as like kind of the token or like the safe black girl, you know what I mean, in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, like, I, I, I wouldn't say anything, you know, when these issues are coming up, like, oh, why do you feel this way about race in America? Well, yeah, because I'm black. Did you not notice that? You know, And it's fine to be like, oh, I just see you as a friend. But I think it's um, because I do love such an American thing, I guess. Um, you know, I love, I love 
the Beach Boys, and I love vintage clothes. They probably think I'm, I'm hearkening back to an era where they see it through rose-colored glasses, and and I certainly don't. Um, I know, you know, I know history. I know everything that went on back then. So I'm not trying to like live a life where I think, oh, everything isn't, you know, everything's not turbulent when it is. Uh, they, they kind of recoil back from that. They're they're a little they're a little weirded out by it. I mean, especially now, I've definitely lost a lot of followers, a lot of friends. I've had a lot of crucial conversations with people about why they feel the way they do. And it's just really interesting to see kind of, I don't know, the weird division between the music and, and what's going on now. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, it's not, you know, don't make it political. And I'm like, well, it's not really a political issue. It's it's about human rights. And it's, it's a, you know, critical conversation that needs to be had. But for some reason, people tend to recoil from it. And, they, and I think that they're surprised that I'm saying anything about it, but I'm like, Hey, I'm black 24 seven. So that's kind of my life. And, um, yeah, it's just, I, I made that post, you know, I thought, ah, no one's probably going to read this. It's weird. But, you know, I made that post right in the midst of, you know, all the protests going on and it just kind of, everyone knows me as like the beach boys fan. And I feel like from both sides, you know, the people who don't really want to get into the politics of it or the people who know me really well, probably were thinking like, are you just turning a blind eye to this? Because this, this thing that you love and consumes your life is so incredibly, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how to put it like I'm just American and, you know, not really about that. Doesn't really talk about issues like that. And I just kind of want to let people know that, yeah, I, I, I notice it. I see it because, you know, I do have a interesting perspective into the fandom. So right. that, that's, that's why I did that. And I got a lot of good responses, which is great. And uh, a lot of people recognize it. You know, I even, I talked to some people who are actually really on the inside and were like, yeah, we, we definitely noticed that too, that some of the fans can be, a, you know, quite abrasive when it comes to certain issues like that. And I just thought it was a good thing to bring up. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think um, hopefully this is a learning moment for a lot of people Right. Uh, I was really proud to see you come out and say that on Instagram. I know that's tough, and uh, we are uh, we're all on the same team as far as I'm concerned. We're all right. pulling for the same thing. We all want the same things, and we all have very similar values. And then, yeah, I mean, along with the the politicization of everything, it's it's another thing that that we touched on before was like the odd kind of political split between the people that are on the Mike Love camp and then the people that are in the Brian Wilson camp. Yeah. I, I, you know, here's the deal. So this is what I think. And it's, it's so inhuman nature to like, if there's two sides, you know, someone's going to pick one. And obviously Mike being on the more conservative leanings, people are going to kind of gravitate towards that. And so Brian, obviously by default, as we said, becomes the other, even though he said nothing, but that's, I think that's what it is. He said nothing. So they obviously right. are going to take that as, oh, okay, you're you're not saying anything. You're being silent about this. That means you're obviously not with the other camp. We're going to side with you, even though he hasn't made any statements at all. And um, I kind of feel like that's that's why that happened. It's really interesting to me that people are speaking for him. It's you know we don't know mm-hmm. what he does. You know we don't know what he thinks. But um, I think that that's a little bit of why I think that happened is because you know if you're not making any kind of statement, then it's you're obviously against this which is, you know, weird, but that's, I feel like that's human nature to kind of try to take a side that way. And like, and like you said, you know, people always pit them together anyway. So like you got your two camps for sure, you know? Um, But yeah, I think the Mike Love camp is definitely 
more vocal about certain things. And, you know, like I said, the America's Band moniker, they don't shy away from. That's definitely their thing. Um, and they're kind of more, I mean, not bashing on Mike Love's Beach Boys at all. Fantastic musicians, amazing shows. But um, it it's, can be on the nostalgic act kind of side, which for a lot of older fans is um, it's easy for them to correlate that to, you know, the good old days and what they did. And they don't see it as turbulent times. They see like cars and girls and surfing. And, you know, there was nothing super political about their music at all. And that's what they see. And that's mostly what they gravitate towards to is the early years where it was like, you know, super fun, fun, fun. Right. Um, so that definitely pushes it more towards, you know, conservatism on Mike's side. And just the fact that, you know, people want to, Put them together anyway, which is funny to me. They're like, oh, it's Brian versus Mike. I'm like, can't we just have both? <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I really like the term America's Band, and I know that's problematic, but I I like it because this was a time when you know America was getting like this crazy British invasion, right, and to yeah. me, I looked at it as like, man, like we're not going to be taken over by these guys from Liverpool because we've got the Beach Boys and that's America's band. And that was always what I kind of saw it as, you know, and that's, you know, and then it maybe takes on other connotations over time. Um, I know that's that's the sad thing to me because I really love it too. Like I am all about it. I love Americana. I'm like, you know, I, I I love baseball and apple pie. I'm like all about it. And the thing to me that sucks is that it's, when you say that now, I mean, I'm sure it had different connotations for like a long time, but for some reason hearing it now, like if I say it to a non-fan or something like a, like a family member or another POC, they're like, their instant visceral reaction is kind of just like, oh, because for some reason, I mean, not for some reason, but just sadly, when you say America something, it, it's so synonymous with being excluded for people of color. Right. And that's, I think that's where the problem is. And, that's awful to me because not only is it just awful, like you shouldn't be like, Hey America, land of the free melting pot. Oh, just kidding. Not for you. That sucks. But also, I mean, I love that America's band. Yeah. They, they are our band. That I mean, if I was going to go into battle and all you could battle with were bands and you're going to different countries, they're my pick. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. 100%. So ah, it's just, it's just, it's a touchy thing and it's, it sucks, you know, like it's, it's, um, I want to be included you know, I love America, but then at the same time, I know that, you know, saying that or just, you know, feeling that I know that I'm being excluded no matter what. And it's, it's kind of weird. It, it doesn't seem very, I don't know. They don't, they don't seem very relatable to people of color because of that. Do you know what I mean? That's where the divide is. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally get that. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I feel like, you know, also what makes it more relatable to me and maybe, to people that understand the whole story of the Beach Boys is that they were an incredibly dysfunctional and flawed group of individuals. And, you know, as time went on, they were putting on a show that didn't reflect the relationships that they had with each other. Right. Um, And maybe that's the most American thing about them. Yeah. Um, How do we, I mean, even just in this small kind of corner of the world like this this beach voice fandom um how do we promote inclusivity you know that's a tough one you know it's like there's a lot of different things that i tossed around in my brain thinking about that because 
that's what we all want. The music doesn't do anything but promote positivity. You know what I mean? It's yeah. nice, beautiful, happy music, and music is supposed to be unifying. But for some reason, there's that underlying, you know, kind of problem. And I think, and in times like these, I mean, much like the 60s, like I always tell my husband, I always joke, I love the 60s, but I never said I wanted to live in it, but it's kind of what I feel like I'm living in now. Yeah. Um, I feel like to take a stand at any moment, I'm, I'm waiting for it. Like, let me know that you care. Let other people know that you care. You know, it's um, that's kind of the issue that was coming up with a lot of people that I talked to, a lot of friends. A lot of those crucial conversations I had was about, hey, you know, if you support this movement and you're on the right side and you need to let me know because I'm not just your fun, vintage dressing, happy black friend. Like, this is about my rights and my life. So do I have your support? And a lot of people, you know, I mean, a lot of musicians came out and said things and it just, it makes me feel good. I don't need them to do it because it makes them look good. I need it to, I need them to be more inclusive to people that listen to them in general. And I'm talking about all musicians, bands, artists, whatever. But the fact that I guess the fact that, that there's been nothing said is kind of the, the silence is what's killing me. And it probably for a lot of people of color who love the Beach Boys, it probably hurts them too. Um, you know, to make posts about, oh, the Amazon's on fire, that's really important, or Notre Dame is being destroyed. Those things are, you know, okay, we'll talk about them. But as soon as this human rights issue comes up, that's when the silence happens. That says a lot to me. And I know it's not as easy as like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go make a statement. I know there's a lot of things involved. And people always say, well, we don't want to get involved in politics. But as we said before, this isn't a political issue, you know? And um, yeah. yeah, you're going to lose some people and people are not going to be happy. But I don't know. It's just, I feel like that's that's the only thing I could come up with in my brain. Like, hey, you, you know, you, you either got to be with us or it can't always be like sunny, good time things. Like, that's not what's going on right now. So I don't know. I know it's easier said than done. But just as someone with that perspective, you know, that's that's how I feel about it, at least. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that's great. That's well said. And I, I do feel the it's how some people can just view it as being an inconvenient kind of moment right. waiting for things like this to pass over so they can get back to what they were doing previously. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's not, it's not something that's fun to have to talk about and have to like stare at head on. And it's, it, I mean, I'm uncomfortable about it. Too, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah. I've had to explore like what it means to be an ally. Right. You know, this is just a, a Beach Boys podcast, but I feel like, you know, everybody has a voice of some sort, right? And I feel like it's time for us to, you know, use that in any way we can. And if we, and if we don't, then, you know, maybe the moment will pass and we'll, and, and things will get back to normal, which isn't good. So right. I, 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 I'm going to, you know, I'm here to listen. I'm here to, to fight. And, uh, you know, if, if anybody listening to our show, uh, wants to, um, reach out to me, then please do. And if you want to reach out to Melanie, please do. Um, she's seems to be an open book and she's always, um, very quick to respond on social media and she's super easy to talk to. So you are very correct. <laughs> good. Um, so again, thank you, Melanie, for joining us. And um, if everybody wants to go check out 
uh, Melanie's Instagram. That is your underscore summer underscore dream. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks again. And you're welcome back anytime. And we can talk about the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah, I'm your girl. <laughs> When the Beach Boys returned from Europe in late November of 1966, Brian had recorded the instrumental tracks for a number of Smile songs, including Wind Chimes, Wonderful, Our Prayer, and Cabinescence. They were unlike anything we'd ever heard. Bizarre, yes, but also beautiful. It was obvious that Brian had taken what he'd done with pet sounds and good vibrations, but added more layers and complexity. The problem, for me anyway, was the lyrics. I didn't understand many of them and thought they had been influenced by the drugs. I called them acid alliteration or something that had been taken out of a Lewis Carroll poem. They were often clever and subtle, but virtually inscrutable in a rock song. Okay, let's welcome in Will and John, my smile sessioneers. What's up, guys? Howdy. Ready to Beach Boy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something fun and bright in our dark, dismal lives. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, here we go. So last time we talked about the sessions for what Brian was calling Dumb Angel. And now with Van Dyke Parks on board, the project would henceforth be known as Smile. We pick up on Monday, September 19th, 1966 at Columbia Studio A. This, this could be another, uh, this could be considered a track. Yeah. Not really, though. We don't want to do that. Like it's this is a little intro, you know, to the album. Okay, this is <coughs> intro to the album, take one, and uh, we're going to definitely need a C-sharp. Right, direct, okay? All right, mm-hmm. let's try to really pull it off good now. Here we go. Three, four. I was sitting at my piano thinking about holy music. I poked around for some simple but moving chords. Later, I sat down and wrote Our Prayer in sections. The boys were overtaken by the arrangement. I taught it to them in sections, the way I usually do. The purity of the blending of the voices made the listeners feel spiritual. I was definitely into rock church music. (laughs) What is rock church music? I guess that's something new Brian was trying to invent at the time. (laughs) There's a few things interesting here. I mean, obviously, it's a very beautiful, very rich arrangement, very close harmonies. Um... And uh, I'll play a little bit of what Steve Bonilla said about that. I was trying to put myself in Brian's place. Yeah. And he might say, well, God has a prayer, and it's called the Lord's Prayer. And the Beach Boys have a <laughs> prayer, and it's called our prayer. Exactly. You yeah. know, and and so I, I listened, I refreshed my memory on the Lord's Prayer, and it's, the melody is on top, and it's... It, parts of it are arranged in for freshman style or in a, in a way that was more typical with voice leading and things like that. Uh, whereas I think our prayer, he, I mean, he, he's, I think he started it as a Gregorian chant with that in mind, whatever his concept of that was, was this some echoey monastery and people are singing, uh, but I think Brian explains that, you know, they took that chant and that in harmony, which 
looks to me like what he did. He took da 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 and in a lower voice and then harmonized on top of it. Yeah, and yeah. it seems to me the the moving parts, or you could say the melodies, are in the lower voices and not so much in the high voices. Uh, and it's not based on Bach four part writing and things like that. It's just I think his harmonies were just based on what was going on and where he might have wanted to go, how he wanted to end the cadence. You know, there's some tricky little things in there, uh, and then in. One of the passes is like, oops, who let the four freshmen out? They they do this descending sort of chromatic thing, and then it sort of gets back in line and it resolves in, into the amen. It's, it sounds kind of like a smiley smile sort of version of it. Like it's kind of sloppy and Carl seems to be having some trouble with it. And that's probably why he changed the key. Yeah, and it's a lot softer and uh, and lower than, than the final one that you hear on 2020 and the smile sessions. Yeah, very good. Danny, do you have any hash joints left? I know you do. You guys feel any ass yet? I feel great. I wanted to ask you guys a little about that. It sounds to me like he says, you guys feel any any acid yet? And it sounds like Al responds, I feel great. Yeah, no, I think that's what he says. It sounds just like Al's voice. So (laughs) what are we thinking? I guess we got to ask Al. Yeah, he, (laughs) he might be joking or who knows. Um, so yeah, like you said, they they moved it up a key and came back uh, in October. So um, yeah, that, that first one was two days before they finished Good Vibrations, and then October yeah. is after they'd done Cavanescence, and so it's the, kind of this, the second thing that they worked on during the sort of proper smile sessions. Um, right, and maybe they moved it. Um, maybe they moved it up because it was a little low for Mike to really resonate. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that's Carl the only well. thing I can think of. And I think Carl as well. You know, people have come up with all sure. sorts of theories about how they changed the key because you know it could lead into good vibrations or whatever. It kind of like those seem fit together key wise. But I think I don't think Brian was ever thinking about that when he was punning songs in a certain key. It was just because it fit the group's vocal range a bit better. And you can tell as sure. soon as this one starts, it's much tighter. It's much more together. And um, I think that's also a lot to do with Dennis and Bruce singing on it too. Yeah, yeah. I think you know you can tell that they've rehearsed it. A little more by this point and um especially because there's six of them singing at mm. this point so you've got um the same basic arrangement um of parts you know you've got mike on the bottom and brian on the, the falsetto on the top and then you've got two groups of unison in between so you got carl and dennis on the second part and then al and bruce doubling the third part right and so it, it's it a really rich much fuller and it's double tracked yeah. as well because it's right he finished in and put it all together so I went like this, whoa, and Al was running that way. <laughs> Al was like this, you know, waiting for the ball, and about four guys breathed his leg up, right? Isn't that how it went? Right, Brian. Well, I, if you could have seen you, man. Let's go, hey, 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 here we go. Imagine. Come on, Johnny. Come on, let's go. Uh, two.
Watch his hand, you guys. What are we doing wonderful? Um, when do you want to do it? Tomorrow night or what? We don't have anything till Thursday and Friday. Oh, okay. Thursday. Why can't we do wonderful? <clears throat> Not tonight. Mm. I'm glad we got this thing done. There's something in here, obviously, that we'll talk about later, but um, I think I hear Carl saying, um, why can't we do wonderful? Talking about doing wonderful vocals. Yeah, it's it's interesting. They, they talk about doing, like, wanting to work on other songs as well during this whole thing. They talk about wanting to work on Wind Chimes and Wonderful, and this is something, yeah, this is something we'll get into later, but we, we think that we they might have actually done some of the wonderful backing vocals at the end of the session. Either that hmm. or the one... Um, yeah, I mean, we'll get into it later, but there's two sessions in October... Um, that the backing vocals for Wonderful might have been done at, but not they weren't done in December, which is the date commonly given to them. That was just the yodeling part. Um, so yeah, even Brian, even though Brian says that we we can't do that tonight, they might have actually done it because there's a rough mix from the next Wonderful session, which was apparently just Brian alone, which has all the backing vocals. So yeah. <laughs> so when they come back to the song in '68, um, they did like a a warbly overdub on a couple of the parts, right? The only other like new part that's added is that, that high falsetto note at the very end before the hum. Gotcha. And then yep. they, they doubled a bunch of the other parts, but it sounds to me like that they added two extra overdubs, which are kind of buried in the mix of it. You know, one had Dennis Dublin, Mike's part and Carl singing um, the Bruce and Al part, just kind of straight. And then another overdub, which was Dennis singing the, the Dennis and Carl part kind of warbly and then Carl singing the Bruce and Al part kind of again, but with this sort of warbly thing kind of wobbling his throat, wobbling his throat. It's a weird effect. You can hear it a lot better in this, um, this sort of eighties mix that goes around that Mark Lennon made in, in 88. Um, so yeah, it just kind of thickens the sound. I think it's the best version. Oh yeah. I like it a lot more in 2020. <laughs> bring the uh, tapes into the studio and we would listen to them and I made copies of everything and a game plan would come together and we would splice things together and figure it out as far as cabin essence was pretty far along the way as and my prayer was quite well recorded we sweetened it as it's called we added thickened it up added some parts cabin essence was finished um, some more or less with Brian's guidance through Carl, but you, you can't, as Carl would say, yeah, gotta work with what you got. The warbliness of it um, gives it kind of a church organ feel yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah, and they, they kind um, of they, you can tell they ran it through the big sort of Capitol echo chambers as well. They did it at Capitol, mm. which is they weren't recorded which they haven't really recorded that since 1962, but um, for some reason in late 68, they were doing a few sessions there, maybe just because it was taking advantage of it because it was towards the end of their contract with Capital. Um, and Brian didn't want to, you know, he didn't want them working on it at the house as well because those songs kind of, he was kind of paranoid about them. So they went over to Capital to do that and Cabin Essence. There's also one more thing that I was thinking about, um, how the, the last chord kind of leads into G. yeah. It's super interesting. It, it doesn't sound like, like Steve said, it doesn't sound like he sat down and wrote the whole thing. 
And Brian even said himself that he wrote it in sections. So I don't even think he was thinking about a a key that the whole thing was in. I think it was just kind of whatever felt good after the last part. So hmm. yeah, um, you know, who knows what he was thinking with the last chord? It could be like it could be used as like a dominant that could you know resolve, or it could just be that's the that's the resolution and the ending. But yeah, because we thought you know this was going to be the intro to the album, but there's also been um, rumors that it could have been the end of the album. Right. So in the first session, um, Brian does say this is this is just going to be the intro. It's not going to be a track, you know, on the album. Kind of like Caroline, no, you know, the dog barking thing. It was kind of its own thing, but it wasn't Marx's track. Right. But then there's some theory that it would have um, later on when he did the second version that. He was thinking about having it close out the album. And there's a quote from uh, Michael Vossi in 1969 where he says, uh, you know about Surf's Up. It was going to kind of close the album. And then after it was over, they were going to do a sort of choral amen sort of thing. So a lot of people think that, that he's talking about our prayer there. Yeah, and there's also in Goodbye, mm. Surf, and Hello God as well, there's um, the Jill Siegel thing. He talks about Brian playing a sequence of acetates in uh, late October. And he sort of, sort of explicitly describes the last one. It seems like it's in quite a deliberate order. I don't know if it would have Brian would have put the songs in that order on the album or anything. But the last acetate he played was prayer, so maybe that was kind of you know suggested where he wanted to put it on the album. It was kind of a closer, but I don't know. <laughs> All right, so moving on to October third at Gold Star, we've got a familiar group of musicians brought in by Brian to assemble one of the cornerstone pieces of the Smile album. It was originally titled Home on the Range, and uh, we know it now as Cabin Essence. Starts off with Van Dyke Parks on piano, and Carol Kay is playing the lead banjo. Then we hear Lyle Ritz on the bowed upright bass, Jay Migliori on flute, Carl Fortino on accordion, and Tommy Morgan on harmonica. Tommy Tedesco is playing the bouzouki, a stringed instrument with Greek origin similar to the lute. And Carl is playing the acoustic guitar, doubling the piano's left hand. That's James Burton sliding across two notes on the dobro. Then there's two cellos played by Jesse Ehrlich and Armand Kaproff. And I'm going to need you guys to help me out because I can't hear the cellos at all on this track. Yeah, so... um what what's happening there is whenever the bass line besides the intro whenever the bass line hits the note g for some reason the cellos play along and they're very quiet and soft um and at first i thought it was like uh, like a snare drum or something that was resonating with that note yeah and then they, and then they combine with the upright bass at the end as well take 12 was the keeper and then they moved on to the chorus section or um who ran the iron horse 
And this section shifts from sort of a lazy swing 4-4 to a bustling 3-4 feel, just alternating between two chords. Still Van Dyke on piano, Carl on acoustic, James Burton on the dobro. This time he's playing near the tuning pegs and it gives it like this sort of railroad spike sound. Lyle Ritz is now joined on bass by Bill Pittman playing the fuzz and then Tommy Morgan on bass harmonica. Jim Gordon is going between drums and tambourine and then he eventually settles on the tambourine. And the cellos are now playing a driving counter melody here, and then Jay now is playing thirds on the alto flute. Let's make it, let's do it again. Jimmy? We'll put the drums on later. All right. I think, hey man, I think you should play, play soft. Let's just play a little softer. All right, here we go. Take nine. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five. That progression is the same progression that Brian uses on, um, I don't know what break you call it, on Good Vibrations, where he's going. Sure. That part where it's uh, the I don't know where part. Right, right. I mean, it's the same, it's the same harmonic rhythm, meaning the chords go to the same place and change at the same time. But that chord progression is also uh, the boy from New York City. And this isn't the discussion, but I think I think Brian was more than just the 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 title song, "The Girl from New York City." I think he was in, influenced by the the boy from New York City, and which may have contributed to the feel of uh, of the original Good Vibrations. So then moving on to the tag or the C section, um, the Grand Cooley Dam. So we start with Van Dyke on a really verbed out piano now. Um, it's com accompanied by Jim Gordon on what Brian was calling the bell goodies. He was just um, clinking glasses. So the cellos come in with the ascending scale, and that brings us into the rest of the track, which is um, kind of a build with banjo and dobro, the fuzz bass, bazooki, harmonica, and then it repeats until the fade. And then listen for Jay Migliori here playing the owl's hoot on the flute, which is one of my favorite things about it. started singing the uh, the over and over thing the guitar right. part 
And so I, ex- I, I started just singing that. No track, no nothing. And I landed on Last Train to Clarksville. And I'm going, no, that can't be. That's no way. And then I looked, and I, I don't know the exact date, but Last Train to Clarksville was a new record at the time. I don't know if it came out in August, and he started the track in October, or... I don't know the timing, but it definitely was out. And KHJ and KFWB were maybe even had the advance the the advance on it. And so it's that literal lateral thing where I was read a little something. Maybe it was Will, you know, that Van Dyke said, "Let's write a song about trains." And Brian Mayer said, "Trains, this this monkey's thing," which is, I'm sure he dug it. You know, and maybe I, I think of him as having this competitive streak, but also sort of latching on to things and just uh, digesting them, absorbing them. And so then I listened to another part of the record, and it's um, where Mickey goes, and I thought, you know, Brian with those background vocals of the group doing the scales I go right be you know yeah and to put it into that western theme the thing you know about building the railroad to me is like well that's that's pretty amazing This is almost like the first time Brian's really writing something in three. So he says, All my life I've been fascinated by waltzes. By this album I rolled around to doing what I call a rock and roll waltz with Cabin Essence. The night I cut the instrumental part, no one could believe that a waltz could rock that hard. I had the six-string bass player play electric fuzz tones. This got it going good. I was sure that I had recorded the most rockin' waltz ever recorded. (laughs) So... You know, we've got rock church music. Now we've got rock waltz. <laughs> this this is this is kind of related, but also in the '90s when he was working on Sweet Insanity, he called one of the songs from those sessions um, "Let's Stick Together." He said that's the first rock and roll waltz that anyone has written. <laughs> <laughs> he did a lot of waltz after. Oh after yeah, smile. This is uh, yeah, yeah, which which so is why that quote confuses me. A little this is bit. the genesis yeah. of it, really. He got into a sort of waltz phase, especially in '68. Um, yeah, friends and everything. Yeah, time to get alone and yeah. all that. So, I'd love to be there when he was just writing this on a piano alone. Like he had to be thinking of of all these little pieces, and it would just be so weird to hear it. Yeah, there's a cool part in the in the Smash Sessions um, webisodes thing where he plays it on piano, and his left hand actually does the cello part. Great, you know, railroad kind of thing. Railroading across America, you know. The vocals were originally tracked in three sessions, October 11th, December 6th, and 15th at Columbia. All except for the verse lead, which was recorded um, for the 1968 version. And then another vocal part that we'll talk about in a sec 
Yeah, so so there's a there's a rough mix that Brian did on October 11th as well. This is um, the first time the title Cavanescence comes up because they accidentally called the session for the Child's Father of the Man earlier in the day, Cavanescence, um, and then had a Home in the Range session for the vocals for this. But that's obviously just Diane getting the titles mixed up. So this is when it was retitled. Um, in the Frank Holmes like booklet illustrations, he's still got the title as Home on the Range. So yeah, that's another kind of mis- misconception that goes around about. Cavalescence is kind of, it was three separate songs, it was Home on the Range, Who Ran the Iron Horse or whatever. It's clear that like when Brian went in the studio on October 3rd and cut the track, he had it all planned out. He's calling it the verse, the chorus, the tag, and this rough mix. Because, you know, he did it in sections, he would copy and paste them later once the backing vocals were done. But this he's got kind of a verse, chorus, tag edit put together already. I mean, those were the hardest parts we, we have ever seen, I think. The articulation of the parts going in and out and in and out, like this, this eight alternate, alternating wave as the, as the train, you know, as you can, you can feel the train going. That is a monster course. Who ran the Iron Horse? Who ran the Iron Horse? Have you seen the Grand Coulee working on the railroad? And it's just a wonderful, epic lyric. The backing vocals in the chorus and the tag here sound yeah. so hard to record because it's like going all over the place, up and down, but it's so fast and a couple of them are singing in unison together, but they still make it sound super tight. What I do is I divorce whatever melody it is. In this case, it was the doing, 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 doing. Yeah. Uh, I just extra ex- extracted it from the track in my mind, and I just started singing that part over and over in different rhythms and different, you know, different inflections. Just and eventually, I came, this melody came to me, and the melody was the first notes of Buttons and Bows. It's Dinah Shore. Okay. East is east and west is west and the wrong one I have chose. Let's go where I'll keep on wearing those frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. Don't bury me in this prairie. Take me where the cement grows. Let's move down to some big town 
And it's it's a song about not wanting to live on the prairie, of all things. <laughs> I went and looked up the song, and I get to this thing. It's like the early 40s, and it goes, bum, 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 bum. And I'm going, and then there's an accordion in there. Huh. And, so, and it just happens to be a Western song. It, he has this sort of lateral, literal, what I say, literal, lateral way of thinking. Oh, Home on the Range, on the Prairie. There's a prairie song, and it's Western, and it's, I know this song, and I, you know, bum, bum, bum. I think in some way he's making these associations to sort of achieve something that evokes Americana or what, the move west or what have you. And the cactus hurts my toes Let's famous where gals keep using Those silks and satins and linens that shows And I'm all yours and buttons and bows Silks and satins and linen that shows uh, and then there's another part on the chorus that they did in 1968, which I was always kind of fuzzy about. But I mean, I knew it was there, um, but I never could tell what Dennis was saying on it. Yeah, 68, all the, all the added, I mean, the song was done, they added it together, but Brian had kind of the blueprint for it, which is not very complicated, you know, it's just first chorus, first chorus yeah. tag. Yeah. Um, then Carl added his lead vocal, and Dennis, Dennis added that second chorus thing, and then Carl double-tracked his part when he sings Home on the Range, but that's it, it's very, they didn't add very much at all in 68, which is why... Brian still has the production credit for it, you, you know, because they only added a couple of extra little things on it. All right, I see. There's some other lyrics that Van Dyke wrote in 66 that didn't even get recorded for 2020 or mm. for Brian Wilson Presents Smile. Um, I'll read them real quick. Reconnected telephone, direct dialing, different color chords to your extension. Don't forget to mention this is a recording. Even though the echoes through my mind have filtered through the pines, I came and found my peace, and this is not a recording. Doobie doo, doobie doo, or not doobie. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> Where would that have gone in the song? I'm pretty sure that that would have been over the first chorus. Because oh. yeah. it's all about, yeah, it's a similar sort of thing. I mean, it's different syllables, so it would have had a slightly different vocal rhythm to it. But if you look at the way it's written, it breaks down in the same number of lines as Truck Driving Man. Yeah. Both verses had lyrics and the tag had lyrics. And I'm pretty sure the structure was going to be the same back then. So yeah, I think... The truck driver man was going to go over one chorus, and this would have gone over the other. Probably a similar melody. I don't know which one would have come first. I, I feel like this would have come first, you know, because, you know, phones came before trucks, I think. Didn't yeah, they? Yes. yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good guess. And it's strange to me why they didn't just record this in 1968. Maybe they forgot. <sighs> yeah, know, Frank Holmes interpreted that as kind of linking in with the whole timey hello thing. Yeah. So on the tag section, we hear one of Brian's favorite kind of musical languages, which is around, basically. Have you seen the Grand Coulee Have you seen the Grand Coulee Have you seen the Grand Coulee Working on the railroad Over and over The crow cries uncovered The
I once asked Van Dyke, what do these lyrics mean? Over and over the crow cries uncover the cornfield, over and over the thresher and hover the wheat field. He said, I haven't a clue, Mike. It sure is tedious to have to explain uh, lyrics to people. And um, it wasn't something I wanted to do for a living. When Van Dyke says that he doesn't know what it means, he's meaning that literally, because what he's done there is he took two phrases over and over the crow cries and hover the wheat field and over and over the thrasher uncover the cornfield. It's like these two literal phrases that make sense and he kind of just mixes them up into a way that sounds kind of more musically interesting. Van Dyke Parks has mentioned that Mike asked him again about it in the 90s, which is crazy. Do you think he was just like thinking about it the whole time? <laughs> He's probably, you know, like, look, like I know what I'm talking about here. Like I'm the lyricist. I've oh, got yeah. number one hit. You're nobody. Like you're writing a bunch of garbled nonsense. Why am I supposed to be singing this? You know? Yeah. I think he's totally justified in yeah, like asking what it would have meant. And yeah, this is the thing yeah. with Van Dyke Park's lyrics. I mean, you said that the whole idea of them was he was trying to create images, you know, and that's the thing. And Brian's music kind of reflects this as well. It's, it's not like Pet Sounds where it's kind of designed to tap into emotions. It's kind of, it puts you in a place. It puts images in your head. And you hear that, like, this in a. I think it was Tom Nolan said that Brian didn't want to get, like, the sound of a carrot. He would like to have made music that is a carrot. Like, it's this very sort of literal. It puts, you know, the, the, the sort of folky banjo, and then the, the sort of Eastern images coming coming in, the spike sound in the chorus. He said that Brian said that, like, the those sort of up and down backing vocals are supposed to be like the steam coming out of a train. It's something that you see on a few of these other tracks that they worked on together. It seems like Brian had this idea in his mind for some of the imagery in a song and had even the the little musical bits that sort of told a story through music. And then Van Dyke was able to really put that into words. There's a sort of indirect quote as well. Again, this is again from the um, Vossi article in 1969, where he, he said he asked Brian about what the song was about. Um, and Brian said that this song is about rail, um, this song's about railroads. And I was kind of wondering about what the perspective was of the guy who drove the spike, the, Chinese labor men on working on the railroad and like they'd be hitting the thing but looking off to and noticing a crow flying overhead and um, that was kind of that that image is kind of the thing that inspired the song it's it's an amazing collaboration I think it's it's like I said it's one of the cornerstone pieces of this of this unfinished record Light the lamp and fire
On October 5th at Western, Brian made a second attempt at wind chimes. And he started here with a new verse. And it's similar to Holidays in, in the way that it is a marimba orchestra. But this time it's just Van Dyke Parks, right? Yep. Because Brian brought his own 8-track recorder so they could do um, more and more overdubs. And it was just Van Dyke and then Chuck Berghofer on bass and Carl was doing finger snaps. Carl, can you do it with your finger? But don't miss, man. I want you to, to lay into that backbeat. Let everything become part of that 2-4 thing. A very lazy 2-4. Here we go. One, two, one, two. Uh, wind chimes. That's where I started. I listened to the chord progression. And the first one thing that struck me a little into it was it's the it's the kind of chord you might hear in just once in my life. It's this nebulous thing. It's a, like a minor seventh with a seventh in the bass. It's a, or yeah. you could call it an eleventh chord or a, whatever you want to call it. And that's some. It's almost like a, a Caroline No kind of chord. And I also thought the marimbas were maybe more of something he had heard, which maybe were bamboo chimes. Again, in, in Priore's book from Van Dyke, he says, when we got to wind chimes on the mallet tremolos, I remember at that point Brian asked me to play the mallets, but... The fellow who really played them was Gary Coleman, the great percussionist, who came down to do a lot of the percussion for the album. We discovered that by recording at half speed, you would come down on an octave, and you could play anything at half speed and an octave lower, raise the speed to normal, and you'd sound like you could play like a son of a bitch, like an expert. Yeah, so yeah, so the, so the part he's talking about that is um, there's three marimba overdubs. The first one, like he's on the basic track, he's just playing like uh, the downbeats with a delay effect on it. Then the first like overdub, he kind of just played the upbeat, so it kind of you know it's just this up and down sort of sound. And then the um, third and fourth ones, sort of glissando thing through the third verse. That the, mm. sorry, the second verse that with we think that was done at half speed. I'm not 100 percent sure on that one. But then at the end, the sort of like tremolo sort of fast part, which was definitely done at half speed. It sounds quite sort of tinny, and if you slow it down, it sounds a little more natural. Um, so yeah, that's another that's another kind of exception to Brian kind of doing this sort of tape trickery thing like he did with, you know, the wonderful track and there's some more stuff we'll get into later, but Brian didn't do that sort of thing very often. Um, and Van Dyke Parks, again, on Song Cycle, on um, Donovan's Colors, you can tell he, he did the same thing again, that sort of half-speed mallet thing, because he wasn't like a professional mallet player, he just could because he's Van Dyke Parks. <laughs> and then they <laughs> did an overdub of Carl on Woodblocks and then also what we can only refer to as a beatboxing track. In the first verse, um, it's kind of covered in echo, but Carl's kind of just like beatboxing into the microphone while he waits to do this sort of whoop block thing. Yeah. Um, and that was included when Brian bounces down into the next sort of tape, Jenny kept that. So it was a deliberate thing. It wasn't just Carl messing around. Um, I don't know where he got the idea to do that, but this sort of mouth percussion thing shows up in Vegetables as well a few months later. Um, 
So that's kind of an interesting. I don't know what the inspiration would have been for that, but yeah, it's quite very, cool. very strange. <laughs> yeah. So then they moved on to doing a new revised tag section, and this again was just all played by Brian on tag mm-hmm. and grand piano, uh, and he added some new flourishes this time around. So there's a lot more going on. Is it when I when I was growing up, there were there were aunts and uncles or other kids I knew who could play one song on the piano, and that was you know it was either Chopsticks, or it could have been Heart and Soul, or it could have been the Knuckles song, which is in that that uh, and I used to see people, you know, even my mom would play the Knuckles song, and I would play it. I would play it. We would sit on the bench together and start playing. And so it, it, it seems to me that that, that, that keyboard buildup is you see a whole bunch of people sitting on piano benches that don't know how to play, but they can play that one thing. And they're adding their little thing that they can play. You know, it just, it's, uh, it's just, a, it, it, it's sort of an innocent image and, and, and something I saw growing up, you know, where, you're playing, you know, it's a nursery rhyme or it's a kid's thing or it's a beginner piano piece or whatever, you know. But it, that was sort of a new way that I started looking at that one section. set it's a balmy afternoon in hollywood brian comes into the studio three at western recorders for an overdubbing session in the booth is his personal eight track machine it's ready to roll in the studio an old upright honky-tonk piano and brian's beautiful black grand piano wait under the microphones i have an idea i'm not sure exactly how this is going to work but we'll try it brian goes to his piano and signals chuck the engineer to roll the tape he plays a simple music box melody the tape is run back on a second track, he adds some tinkles on the honky-tonk piano. For about a half an hour, Wilson goes over the same piece, filling the eight tracks with counterpoints, syncopated gates, and notions. Okay, let's hear it. Wilson in the control room, standing close to the center speaker, listens to the playback. He rushes to the board and supervises the throwing of switches and turning of knobs. More echo on the third track, a touch of reverb on the second honky-tonk overdub. This track dry, and the other with more highs. Something happens to the sounds. They change. They move around and are transformed into a work of sheer beauty. Everyone in the booth has seen and heard the entire process. How did he do it, they ask one another. Wilson stands at the back of the booth chuckling. He grabs a fire extinguisher off the wall and aims the nozzle at his friend David Anderley. All right, David, this is it. You've had it. All over David's face. Both men collapse giggling. That's just pure Brian right there, you know. (laughs) So on October 10th, they were back in Columbia to do these vocals, and Carl Wilson double-tracked the lead vocal, and then the entire rest of the group joined him on the choruses. Hanging down from my window, those are my winter. On a warm breeze, the little bells tingle like wind. 
One thing I wanted to mention about this lyric was from John Stebbins' book, and he said this could have been like one of the first times that we see some of Brian's paranoia creeping into the songs, which, you know, I mean, these are Van Dyke's lyrics, but still, we know how Brian works with his collaborators. And yeah. um, when he says, though it's hard, I try not to look at my wind chimes, which is a really strange kind of... Very eerie. Yeah, it's a really eerie thing, and it, I mean, it makes a lot more sense you know in hindsight but yeah um it's like a kind of a sweet like pretty thing and then it becomes like this you know this thing that he's trying to avoid so it's a really interesting lyric yeah i mean that, that's the thing people people always forget that van dyke wrote the wind chimes lyrics i guess because they're not like yeah. as sort of explicitly van dyke in the way that wonderful is and he wasn't credited yeah. on it at first on smiley smile yeah on smiley smile but if you like if you just read them i, I think they're very like outside of the first line which we know brian wrote because he was singing it at the session um the very first version but the rest of them i think sound very van dyke that you know like on a warm breeze the little bells tinkle like wind chimes like what do you mean they tinkle like wind chimes they are wind chimes that seems like a very van dyke thing to me and yeah. um that whole in the late afternoon you're hung up on wind chimes that's such a van dyke parks pun um and then yeah that sort of weird melancholy term where it's like I, though it's hard i try not to look at my wind chimes now and then a tear rolls off my cheek like yeah it's what's strange that about like that doesn't sound like something brian would write to me that's a, that sounds like a van dyke box line um another thing that i had a question about was um was this plan to be the air portion of the elements screen? no 
That's what I thought. <laughs> answer. Just yeah. wanted to hear it from your lips. <laughs> <laughs> this was just wind chimes. This wasn't the elements. The elements came yeah. later. This was just a song about wind chimes, and it wasn't there or anything. Um, yeah, it was its own thing. It was a song called The Elements. This is a song called Wind Chimes that has like a full verse, chorus, tag. Yeah. Brian's mix of fire was only like a minute and a half, so whatever air would have been, had he even like written it or completed it, would have just been um, a small section of music. Yeah, and I think I mean, there's a quote from like the late 70s where he says that it was just a piano piece. Yeah, so so we'll get into that at some point eventually, but like, you know, vegetables kind of like, vegetables what kind of was the elements and then it became its own thing. But wind chimes, it seems, was just kind of by itself. It was never, it was just a song about wind chimes and Brian was into that sort of thing at the time, but it wasn't directly a song about air in the way that... I mean, if you want to put yeah. that in your, in, your, in your smile mix and make it fulfill kind of like this sort of air role, that's fine. Because it does sound like that, but it, that, it wasn't part of the elements at the time. Yeah, that, that's kind of how they do it in 2004. They kind of took the whole concept of the elements and turned it into like a suite, like a whole side of a record. Yeah, like a separate song thing instead of just one song. Yeah, I mean, Wind Chimes could have inspired part of the elements, but it wasn't, it wasn't a part of it in any way. So, with newly penned lyrics by Van Dyke Parks, the group revisited Wonderful at Columbia on October 4th and 6th. So Brian Wilson takes the lead vocal on the verse while Mike, Al, and Bruce are handling the backing vocals. Yeah. The only thing that yeah, the only thing they added after that was the Yodel part in December, which kind of dropped in on one of the vocal tracks. It replaces um what would have been Al's part in the, the third verse. It's just kind of it, you know, he replaced that and then at some point he wiped his lead vocal on on the multi-track because he's a terrible person and uh, that's what we've been on the stereo mix and my, um, my favorite part of the vocal arrangement is Bruce's high part the way it like blends in with the trumpet when that comes in it's rad and it's it's you know I said before this is my favorite track on Smile I, I just I love everything about this I love the kind of Baroque pop feel and then now that we've got vocals on this man we can talk about how great Brian's vocal is and the oh, melody yeah. is so strange and then you know and just the backing vocals are simple but they're just awesome the the blend of them um the arrangement um the little variations you know especially when they add in the, the yodeling part um and then these bizarre lyrics that paint a really um beautiful picture i'm just such a big fan of this she belongs to Lost it all to a 
Yeah, in Dominic Priori's book, Van Dyke Park says, Musically, it's entirely different from anything else, and I thought it was a place, an opportunity to begin a love song. I remember Brian pressing me about the relationship between the mother and the father and the child. And this is the guy who wrote When I Grew Up to Be a Man, the guy who was becoming a man. I really think that he was thinking about his own personal progression from childhood. Now I thought, once we had gotten Heroes and Villains done, we might have seen a boy-girl song emerge. Other than Wonderful, honestly, I really thought that we would do it, but I never found an opportunity to pursue that with the music I was given. It wasn't that we were trying to climb an ivory tower or get away from Boy Meets Girl. I wanted to meet more chicks. That's why I was working for Brian Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, it couldn't have been something that hadn't occurred to me. I had always believed that it would be wonderful to write the love song like the great American novel, something that doesn't seem to have been written quite yet. You know, instead of falling in love with a girl, he's falling in love with vegetables. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, of, it's, yeah. And then there's all types of things like like talking about like the wonderful meaning like a girl's private parts, right? I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know how else to say that, yeah. but like there's kind of an allusion to that. Um and I mean, it's definitely also a sort like of loss of innocence sort of thing, right? It's also like you know, like isn't this the first time they really say God, like outside of like God only knows, but like actually referring to God, yeah. like thank God. I'd never thought about yeah, that. God yeah. only knows. Yeah. It's almost like more of a of a phrase, like more of a not direct no, reference yeah. to God. But here, when it when here in the lyrics when like the melody rises and the key changes when they say thank god for wonderful mm-hmm. it yeah, feels I mean, a lot more direct right so you've got a lot of the elements here like the spirituality and then the the child is the father of the man um so yeah it's it's a rad lyric and it's super poetic thanks dudes let's wrap this up for now um we got some more fun stuff to talk about next time any any hints as to what we're going to cover next. I've got no idea. What are we doing next? <laughs> <laughs> I forget. <laughs> I got to find the list or whatever. Coming up next time, guys. You just have to wait and see. Because we don't know. Child's father of the man, I think. <laughs> yeah, child's father of the man sounds right. And it's worms. Okay. The um, worm song. Oh, but yeah. yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, dudes. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah. All right. Peace. Okay, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Huge shout out to the human jukebox, Steve Bonilla, your quarantine dream, Melanie Svena, my expert team of Beach Boys nerds, Will Crera and John Brody. We'll see who does our music. Matt Thompson, who does our graphic design. Each and every one of you guys for spending your precious time with me. Until next time, this is Wyatt Funderburk in Nashville, Tennessee. And be kind to each other, guys. Sail on, sailors. 
Alright, this is seven. Ah! <clears throat> Alright. <clears throat>